Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we are going to be talking about the second Magnus Chase book. We have new guests. We have a lot of new characters, new opinions. Stick around. Welcome, everyone, to Seaweed Brain. We used to talk about Percy Jackson. We used to talk about Percibeth. That died, and now we're talking about <laughs> Magnus Chase to kill time before the TV show comes out. Don't tell Magnus that, though, because we do, we do love him individually. We could do 18 episodes on Magnus Chase, but who has the energy for that? Instead, I hope that you have reread the entire book in preparation for this episode and or not done that at all, which is also fine because we are going to summarize the whole thing before we get into the discussion. If you've never read it or if you haven't read it in a long time, you can still listen to this episode as long as you aren't afraid of spoilers for The Hammer of Thor. All right, disclaimer over. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain. We have three guests joining us today for a round table discussion on The Hammer of Thor. It's like a, a pentagonal table. We have one returning guest. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, y'all. Glad to be back. And we have two brand new guests joining us today from their own corners of the internet. We have Vesma. Hi. Hello. And we have Lark. What's up? Hello. I guess I could have introduced you better and like said where you come from, but instead I'm going to have you guys tell us in your own words where you come from on the internet. Vesma, if you would like to go first. Hi, I'm Vesma. I'm at Bookish Vesma on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. I do all three. Um, I basically run books, book socials. Um, in addition to that, I do co-host a book club called Buttaka Book Club that focuses on Muslim authors, as well as work part-time for a book talk event, which is currently happening right now. In my real life, when I'm not doing book stuff, I work as an engineer, but I like this stuff a lot more. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know that you were also an engineer, but that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm glad it makes sense. Because most people, it doesn't make sense. No, it makes sense. Like, you're not the first person to come on Seaweed Brain and be like, I'm Bookstagram famous, but also I do neuroscience. And Lark, where do you come from? I'm sure some people are going to recognize your voice. Yeah, <laughs> I, probably. I am half of Hashtag Ruthless Productions. We make too many podcasts considering that it's just two people. It sounds like more when you say productions, but it's just, just me and my co-host, Jesse. <laughs> Don't give away your secrets. <laughs> you have five interns for all they know. Uh, no, then they won't. I'm like, no, pay us for the 35 hours a week that we both work <laughs> to make this podcast. <laughs> Patreon. Exactly. Yeah, we make a Harry Potter podcast called The Gaily Prophet. Right now we're making a Our Flag Means Death podcast called The Gay Pirate Podcast. We have one about the Simon Snow series by Rainbow Rowell called Escape from Reality. And that hesitation in the middle is because it's spelled E-S-G-A-Y-P-E. <laughs> and we have a Patreon and a Buffy podcast called We Are the Gayers. You can find us all the places. We're on Instagram and Twitter at The Gaily Prophet. Most of our stuff is under the hub of The Gaily Prophet. So. It's just so casual about the full-time job that you have of running like 18 podcasts and maintaining a social media presence and et cetera, et cetera. Obsessed with you, Lark. You're amazing. Thanks. Lark and I met doing Fandom Forward stuff, which is great. Check out Fandom Forward, everyone. Coalition link 
in our show notes. I do have some questions. Now that we know where you guys are from, give me a little taste of your Riordanverse origin story. Just a little a little flavoring of how you first came into these books. Maybe your first experience with Magnus Chase even. I read the books uh, in fifth grade. And so by the time I finished Percy Jackson, Here's Olympus were coming out year by year. So those were actually the first books I ever pre-ordered in my life. I was like anxiously waiting. So I do like that like agonizing wait yes. after work with Athena in real time. I think the minute it came, I like took it to school with me. I was like lugging around this huge book. Good. I was that kid in school. Um, so I did the same for Magnus Chase. And I think for the last book of Magnus Chase is actually when I hit high school. And I kind of just stopped reading altogether. So I kept buying the books and never read them. So like I've never gotten to Trials of Apollo. They're just sitting on the shelf. That's so, so. deliciously <laughs> relatable. I love it. And do you have a godly parent, magical beast, creature, pantheon, specific alignment within the Reardonverse? Uh, it's the most basic thing for a reader. I'm my godly parent's Athena. Absolutely. It's like to be expected. Uh, Lark, what about you? So I'm... I think old in this group. So, <laughs> so I'm 35. Uh, I read, ooh, I read the Percy Jackson books for the first time. I want to say in like 2019. It was after I started the Gaily Prophet because I used to read the Harry Potter books every night to fall asleep because I had really bad insomnia and then I couldn't do that anymore because they had become work and every time I was reading them I was like oh I can't wait to talk about that I can't wait to talk about that do I need to be taking notes and that's not helpful Mm. so I was like I need a new like kids fantasy story to fall asleep to and had just like heard about Percy Jackson and was like I'll read that um so I read that and then the heroes books and then Magnus Chase from like the excerpt at the back of my you know Kindle edition of one of the books I was like yeah okay I'll read that and I was like wow this is so much better than any of the Percy Jackson books so (laughs) (laughs) I love that take I'm so excited to hear more about that take and what about your identification within the Ryerton verse? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this because I saw it on the outline. I was like, LOL, I should make a joke about how Ratatosk lives in my brain. But that's dark. <laughs> you are Ratatosk, <laughs> the giant monster rat living in the world tree? I'm not. Ratatosk just talks to me all the time. <laughs> Highly underrated character that we did not talk about on the last episode. <laughs> totally. I feel like I resonate with like being a random son of Frey. And like, that sounds really gay not wanting to fight but like being forced all the time i just like really identify with magnus so i'm gonna go ahead and also be a son of frey how does it feel to be the first real millennial representation on seaweed brain podcast (laughs) um stressful now that i know that that's the case (laughs) no that's fine i'm excited to represent i think uh jesse my co-host and i were just talking earlier about how we feel like ambassadors for like millennial gen z love instead of this weird antagonism that's happening on the internet we're just like no we're all in the same ship here like we all need to love each other better so (laughs) the ship of the dead made out of toenails (laughs) we're all sailing on a ship made of undead uh biotin uh anyway okay (laughs) blah 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 elizabeth do you want to tell us about your experience with magnus chase definitely Magnus was the first book I read where I was the same age as the character because I was always younger and so that was like a very fun experience in high school I just aged myself then um but 
I thought it was such a great series. I used to own them in hardcover, and then I got rid of them in moving. Very sad. And to update my godly parent status, I did a new quiz on Epic Reads, so not the official oh. Riordan one. And it said I was a child of Hades, so that's an interesting <gasps> development in my hmm, character growth since I was on here. I love that for you. I do remember since Lark is here, I'm going to tell this anecdote to like absolve myself of my sins. But I remember when Pottermore first became a thing and everyone was like, this is the definitive, sorry to talk about Harry Potter, but this is the definitive thing that's <laughs> going to tell me like whatever I get on Pottermore, like I'm, that is it, period. No more ridiculous like man-made random <laughs> ass <laughs> 2001 websites that are going to tell me what my house is. Like this is it. And I took the quiz like when I was like beta testing Pottermore because I signed up early and I got Hufflepuff and I never told anyone <laughs> and then I refused to use Pottermore until it was like open access to the public and I logged in and I made a new account and I retested <laughs> purposely as much as I could to get into Slytherin <laughs> and it worked and this is the first time I'm being honest about that how many tries did it take though I don't remember <laughs> You can kind of choose, right? The sorting hat kind of takes you into account, right? It does a bit. A bit. Well, okay. <laughs> All that being said, I think it's time for our TLDR summary of the entirety of Hammer of Thor. Are we ready to hear me talk for 10 minutes straight? You can feel free to take a pee break if you want. Okay. Here we go. Music. Pretend there's music and sound effects playing. We open on Magnus six weeks after... I could put in... I'm the editor. Okay. We open on Magnus six weeks after the end of the Sword of Summer. He's now more acclimated to the Einherjar life in Hotel Valhalla. Today, he's meeting up with Sam in Boston on, I believe it's Newbury Street at a coffee spot called The Thinking Cup. I thought it would have been cute if they went to that one bookstore that's on Newbury Street, right, Carter? Trident Books? Thinking Cup is kind of mad. Oh, it's a real place? I'm 90% sure this is a real place and I'm not tripping. I'm coming to Boston in like a few weeks where we'll have to go. We're going to do a Magnus Chase tour. It's like, instead of doing the Freedom Trail, we're doing a Magnus Chase tour around the spots in Boston. We'll go to Back Bay and like break into a random mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I was just traveling and I did an actual Percy Jackson tour of a location I was in and instead of anything else that one could possibly do Was there. it the Getty Villa? It was the Getty Villa. The Getty Villa has a Percy Jackson tour. They kind of advertise in the back. But if you ever are in the northwestern edge of Los Angeles, check it out. They have the URL at the guide desk at the sort of back by the cafe. Delightful, delightful stuff. They so characterize Hercules a little weirdly, but um, generally quite delightful. Sorry. Amazing. We're back in it. Magnus is meeting up with Sam at the Thinking Cup. She has to dash off, tells him to wait for an in quote-unquote informant who has info on where they can find Thor's hammer, which as you may recall from the last book or deduce from the title of this episode, is the central mission of this novel. Getting Thor's hammer back to big dumb Thor. It's Otis, one of Thor's goats, who is the informant, who comes in in a trench coat saying that the hammer is in a white sparrow. We do not know what that is. I still don't know what that is. Otis is then assassinated by some kind of ninja who Magnus fails to capture or ascertain the identity of. Magnus heads back to the Hotel Valhalla to find there is a new, extremely chaotic, incredibly violent, possibly dangerous member of Floor 19. It is Alex Fierro, the shape-shifting child of Loki, whose weapon of choice is a garrote. 
Before Alex can murder anyone on the floor, they all head down to do the Thursday night fight to the death where they battle a giant lindworm that might questionably have been sent by Loki. During the fight, Magnus starts to black out. He starts inhabiting the body of Uncle Randolph, who is back in Back Bay because Loki wants to talk to Magnus and he's doing some like weird mind-body magic to do so. Loki tells Randolph Magnus to bring, quote, the bride and the bride price to a wedding. And in order to free Magnus from this Loki mind control, Alex decapitates him with her garrote. Uh, at dinner that night we witness the circumstances of Alex's death Uh, Alex's Valkyrie is also Sam and Sam tells Magnus about Loki's plan to marry her off to a giant named Thrym who definitely has Thor's hammer probably we think hopefully what Loki's motive is here we are not sure of probably just to form a Ragnarok alliance or something else probably something more nefarious we go to the White Sparrow in Cape Cod we fight an undead army um, that's protecting a very powerful sword the Skofnung sword. Feel free to roast me on the internet for pronouncing that wrong. (laughs) This is supposedly a sword that's strong enough to free Loki from his intestine shackles, but Loki shows up, incapacitates Sam in a way that is very frightening, like he almost kills her. Has Randolph get that sword. Randolph stabs Blitzen. Hearthstone turns him to stone to prevent him from dying, and the gang is forced to head to Alfheim, the realm of the elves, to acquire a whetstone for the sword that happens to be in the possession of Hearth's abusive father. Here we have this whole adventure sequence where we see how abusive Mr. Alderman is to his son. Also, we see how terrible the elf cops are. The gang teams up to pay off Hearth's guild, which is an old English term for man payment, because Hearth's dad believes that Hearth owes him money after murdering, in quotes, quotes murdering his little brother. To do this, we have to go visit a dwarf who lives as a fish in a lake because this is Norse mythology. We have to steal his magic ring and give it to Mr. Alderman to turn him into a scary, greedy monster. More on that in the next book. We save Blitz, and Blitzstone heads over to the dwarf realm. Magnus heads back to Boston to find Samira. If we don't remember who Amir is, Sam's um, boyfriend slash future husband, blowing his mind with the truth about the Norse gods in Boston, with the truth about her secret double agent life as a Valkyrie. Magnus uses his gay summer magic to like temporarily heal Amir's mind so it doesn't melt into goo and we zap up on the Bifrost to Heimdall for I don't know why to get more info because he sees things he tells them about the wedding lets them know that Utgard Loki who is a giant sorcerer we met in the last book he was probably also the one who was dressed up like a ninja and assassinated Otis earlier he wants to see them in Jotunheim so Magnus and Alex go to collect some clues at Randolph's mansion Uh, we find out what the location of the wedding is going to be and then we all head off to Jotunheim there's chaos magic a big bowling match we uh, see Alex and Magnus use like Jotun style trickery to win uh there's a lot of strange magic happenings I would have loved to see Hazel here she would have killed (laughs) this bowling match we confirm that Loki's plan is to free himself with the sword and then we narrowly escape the giant bowling league we have a run-in with Sif the fertility goddess who is also very notably the wife of Thor we devise a plan to have Alex and Sam switch places for the wedding, um, partially because Sam vows to never marry anyone other than Amir. Also, Alex can shapeshift, and Alex has a stronger ability right now to fight against Loki's very scary mind power, which is important. This is an ability that Sam doesn't really have. We have an epic girl boss makeover with Sif, where they dress up in their bridesmaid slash wedding dresses. The plan, of course, does not go to plan, as they all end up in Loki's cavern, where he is trapped. But the gods still storm in, Thor gets his hammer, Randolph unfortunately does free Loki using the Skofnung sword and whetstone, and then he falls into Helheim. Very sad. Rest in peace, Uncle Randolph. Odin tells Sam it's her job to re-imprison Loki. 
who is probably out now raising the ship of the dead to begin Ragnarok. Magnus decides it's time to ask Annabeth for her advice on boat trips, which, quote, brings back painful memories for her. <laughs> and she decides that it's time to call in Percy. And that is where we end the book. <sighs> <laughs> All right. If you're still listening, uh, thanks for that. I have a general question to pose to the group, which is like, what are the themes of this series? You know, like, <laughs> we were talking a little bit in the last episode about how like Percy Jackson has prophecies and Norse mythology does not have prophecies. And it's much more chaotic than that. It's all just kind of uh, what we can do to prevent Ragnarok as long as possible. And that's just what we're doing on any given day. But I'm just curious about like, what do you guys think like the general lessons to be learned from Magnus Chase are, the general goals, the themes, etc.? Like how we have hubris and sacrifice and consequences in Percy Jackson. What do we have here? I want to say there's a lot of focus on family, especially with the fact that Loki is the father of two of our main characters, mm -hmm. um, or mother for Alex, right? And so much of this conflict is Loki-based and it goes with the relationship. But I will say, though, for Magnus, I think a big shift that we see in Percy Jackson we're not seeing here is Magnus's like motivations aren't what we see in the previous series. Like, for example, I forgot mm -hmm. about Uncle Randolph until the end of the book. <laughs> I was like, who? Versus for Percy, like, Sally's a very important part of his life. And, for example, the first book, he has to get to Sally and save his mom. Whereas this one, I feel like Magnus somehow takes a background role in his own story, mm. which I'm so here for. Because I love Magnus death, but he's not the most interesting character. <laughs> That's, so true. That's so true. That's true. And also because of his nature as being not a fighter, being a pacifist, he doesn't take the front seat in the battle sequences mm -hmm. you know he kind of just like does his best lets jack do his best for him and then kind of watches and observes what everyone else is doing let's half lord <laughs> gunderson do you know most of the slashing and mallory i feel like this is a found family book that just happens to be taking place in a fantasy world <laughs> it's just like a queer book about making your own making your own family <laughs> winner of the 2017 stonewall book award there you go. I feel like insofar as there is a lesson to be had that is individual and or more actionable, I think that because Magnus enters with such a different perspective from Percy, they seem to be going on sort of opposite journeys where Percy is trying to unlearn all of these ideas he has about action and Heroism. heroic behavior exactly trying to really getting it beaten into him in different ways over the course of the books like what responsibilities he has and what things he should not do and should not aspire to whereas magnus it seems like really doesn't have those same ambitions so it's more about him just <laughs> i don't want to say just vibing but he's just vibing. yeah i think lark put it perfectly i was trying to find the words to say like it's about family and like interpersonal relationships and like in a small scale way that Percy Jackson is not about like obviously all of Rick's main characters have some kind of difficult childhood and relationship with their family but I just feel like especially what we talk what we get in this book with Hearth and how we see Magnus and Blitz be there for Hearth is like a queer found family story like how do you go back to the place of your childhood trauma with your newfound family and like deal with that together i mean our main main characters like magnus and blitz and sam all had good relationships with their parents who are now dead and the only people with living parents have terrible relationships with their parents so it really is like whether they've left your life by choice or because you had to cut them off like none of these people have adult 
parental figures in their lives, not counting their godparents, because I don't think that really counts. And so they're like, what does it mean to like, either have your parents have, you know, died or have had to like move away from them because they're terrible, and then still like move forward in the world and find support and like, build something beautiful where you feel taken care of. That was great. I appreciate all of those thoughts. Should we talk about Alex? Because I feel like that's why we're all here. (laughs) Like Alex is obviously, I feel like for me, this is the book of Hearthstone's trauma and the introduction of uh, Fiero Chase and that relationship. Those are like the two most important things in this book. I think we should start by talking about Alex's signature colors, which are lime green and hot pink. (laughs) What a take. Discuss. (laughs) Who else cackled? Who else saw that? And immediately was like, ooh. Did he just like pull two ends of the color spectrum and was like, yes, perfect. Also like the ties. I love, like the sweater vests, the ties, the suspenders. We the- see the vision. Like, I do, see it. Do we not all know this kind of like diabolical? I exactly was like, when when, when we said lime green and pink, I was like, oh, I know this person. I see you, Alex. <laughs> I see you. I was that person in high school for sure for sure did you have a color combination no and honestly like it's my fashion sense is like not that different now like it's always just been like black and (laughs) rainbow or like the two things that I wear but like I wore a lot more rainbow as like primary in high school whereas now it's all like accents you know like I only wear black but then I have like rainbow splashes small ones yes (laughs) yes nice That lime green and purple were the colors of my elementary school bedroom. So I actually really appreciate the lime green and pink. (laughs) Yeah, it really was. Um, I just, there's something about the brightness that brings me a lot of joy. So I didn't realize it was such a bad choice no they're great no, they go really great. well together everyone who's who's insulting them is incorrect those are complimentary colors um they're complimentary colors it's sickening but sickening in a delightful beautiful but also like maybe comic book villain kind of way you know? <laughs> like a child of loki way yeah it's it's very like 80s like yeah. you can't tell like are you going to like joker me or are you going to slay <laughs> Um, (laughs) and I think Alex does a little bit of both because Alex is so violent (laughs) I want to shout out at a.bookworms.life on Instagram Alex literally kills Magnus and people have the nerve to think Percebeth is toxic (laughs) people are like Annabeth judo flipped Percy that's so inappropriate (laughs) and Alex on the first day of knowing Magnus decapitates him context is key my friends (laughs) he's back afterwards it's not a permanent killing and it's also like what they're supposed to be doing alex understood the assignment yeah alex is like saving magnus's mind from like at that point like wasn't magnus like shaking and like sweating and like almost being destroyed by loki's mind magic Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah alex saved him and it was a quick and easy also, I feel like he'd let him do it on a regular day, too. Like, he's such a golden retriever. Like, Alex can do whatever he wanted. Is that the headcanon we're advocating here? That Alex just regularly kills Magnus for fun? Yeah, whenever they're in Hotel Valhalla, 100%. And Magnus doesn't even attempt to fight back, obviously. No. Why would he? He has no desire to. He's like, is that going to make you, is that going to put you in a better mood today? Then that's fine, sweetheart. Carter, didn't you want to mention that piece about rage that you were reading in class today? It's an 
page treatise about trans rage that is mostly a reinterpretation, I guess, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from, I think, the 90s by Susan Stryker. I really hope I'm getting the citation right. Delightful, delightful. And all of which is to say that the fact of how angry she is. Um, it's not just happenstance. It's not just one of those things where because Magnus is so nice, Alex had to be so mean. Alex just no. a priori. Before we before we know about all of their entanglements with the other characters, it was right. It it had to be, and it's beautiful to see it. Absolutely, we'll drop that link in our show notes. I'm also going to go ahead and read this quote from Magnus's first interaction with Alex when Alex tells everyone that her pronouns are she/her today. Suddenly, my whole perspective had flipped inside out, like when you look at an inkblot picture and see just the black part. Then your brain inverts the image and you realize the white part makes an entirely different picture, even though nothing has changed. That was Alex Fierro, except in pink and green. A second ago, he had been very obviously a boy to me. Now she was very obviously a girl. Slow nods all around. (laughs) (laughs) The first time I read it, I was like, this is kind of corny. But then I paused and I was like, wait, hold on a second. There's, no, there's something to that. I felt like if this book had been written like two years later, Rick wouldn't have said ink blots. He would have said like, it's like that dress that was either blue and black or white and gold. (laughs) And that was Alex's gender. But we were just like, we just barely missed that reference, I think. Yeah, I feel like I had the same reaction. Like at first I was like, oh, this is a little corny. And then I was like, this is a child's book. Like how special, how special for kids reading this and getting to know Alex as a a human being who is real and exists. A little bit later in the book, when Magnus and Alex are talking, what Alex says is that most of the time I feel like a girl, but some days I wake up and have days that are very specifically male days. And Alex is like, do you get that? And Magnus is like, "Um, will you kill me if I say no? And she's like, no. And he says, then no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she says, you don't have to get it, just, you know, a little respect. Which I also thought was great. Like, <laughs> there's yeah. never at any time, Magnus never presses Alex for anything, like for explanation, to do anything, to say anything, to make anything clear to him. He's just like, okay, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but I got it. That's fine. Respect given. Don't hurt me. Um, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> You're the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. So. <laughs> and this conversation, for those of you who haven't read the book, especially, is really fascinatingly placed where most of the details that we get about Alex's gender identity come in a conversation that's more than halfway through the book. So at this point, we all have a really good sense for lots of other things that we might know about Alex. We have a good sense for what kind of clothes he wears. We have a really strong sense for uh, his like interpersonal dynamics. And that's all before we get to this point, because the conversation only happens because at this point, like Alex and Magnus are friends and it makes sense for them to maybe have a more prolonged conversation about certain aspects of their respective backgrounds and identities. Yeah. And when Alex first shows up in Hota Valhalla and transforms from a ferret back into a human um, (laughs) and just sort of instantly (laughs) insists like she, you, she, her pronouns for me. Like, I think there's like two lines where it's like, okay. And TJ is like, you got it. And then it's, then it's done. And then there's the Magnus line about the ink blot, and then we just move forward, and we don't really address it very much until, like, halfway through the book, really. Magnus also has an interesting line, I think around the first time he meets Alex, where he says something along the lines of, like, I met a lot of, like, trans people when I was unhoused living in Boston, and that he mentioned that as, like, a frame of reference, which is interesting in a lot of ways. Like, first of all, for those of you who... um, 
I don't know, like, are less familiar with what the situation is like in Boston, it is, in fact, a fairly common experience. Um, there are, like, a lot of unhoused trans people in the city, like, specifically trans young people. But the implication of the way that this is, that this conversation goes, to me, at least reading it, was that Alex doesn't really pass, and Alex doesn't really try to pass. And she also, like, gets into this more later on, like, when she and Magnus are having this longer conversation in the mansion. She basically just says, like, oh, yeah, I can look like whatever I want, but that's not really how gender identity works for her. Right. And, like, that's not how she experiences it day to day. And on days where she takes different pronouns, she doesn't even try to look different. Like, she, she's serving you the same type of outfits. Pink and green. Same kinds of hair, yes. basically, every day. and. I admire that a lot. (laughs) There were a lot of different ways that could have gone. (laughs) Like when Alex was in ferret form and like kind of freaking out when she first got to Hotel Valhalla, it was because she was scared that when she died, she was going to end up in one form and not still be fluid in the way that she is. Um, Bessman, were you going to say something? I was honestly just thinking about how the rooms were exactly the same. That really stuck out to me, which also like builds, like I feel like that starts the foundation for this budding relationship. Because I was thinking about when she when uh, she first arrived, and that's the first thing I thought of. That the room, other than the fact <laughs> that she kills him, that the rooms yes. are exactly the same. They they both have the same nature vibe. They have an atrium in the middle of their living room, um, and Magnus sees it and like catches a glimpse inside and sees it and is like, wait a second. I've never seen any other room in the entirety of the thousands and thousands of rooms in Hotel Valhalla that has this design. What does that mean? I'll think about it later. <laughs> Soulmates. Um, on a similar note, I have to read this quote. This is also somewhere midway through the book. Is this the mom one? Yes, this is the mom one. <laughs> the way Alex spoke so approvingly of me, that had made something click. I realized who she reminded me of, her restless energy, her petite size and choppy haircut, her flannel shirt and jeans and boots, her disregard for what other people thought of her, even her laugh. On those rare occasions, she laughed. She reminded me weirdly of my mom. I decided not to dwell on that. (laughs) I don't know. Why, when you were reading that, all I could think about was that one a paragraph in City of Glass that's like, you're my blood, you're my sister. <laughs> I slammed my book onto the table when I read this line. I was like, Brick. This is why proofreaders exist, is for people to be like, no, no. I think it did need to be there, to be honest. Like, does it make me a little uncomfortable? Yes. Is it? Marius, though? (laughs) Why did it need to be there? Why? (laughs) What purpose is it serving? I think it's like a beautiful story that says like, you know, like no matter where we go as a society in terms of new ideas about gender and non-binary identity, your partner will always still see a parent in you no matter what. You know, like, and that's... (laughs) No. Weird. Carter! Honestly, though, that does make me feel safe a little bit. Beautiful, right? Like, don't you feel like, wow. I would not feel safe (laughs) if my significant other told me that I reminded him of one of his parents. Get out. I feel like I've never been in a relationship where somebody hasn't said that to me. (laughs) This is a little personal drama. (laughs) But I do think it's funny that we're all like, 
Annabeth is like Sally. Like Annabeth and Sally are both girl bosses. Like I wonder if Percy notices that. And then in this book, Rick is just like, and then Magnus saw his mother <laughs> in the love of his life. They even have the same laugh. <laughs> <sighs> yes. Do you want to read the pottery quote, Carter? Sure, we'll read it into the record. <laughs> that design, the two entwined snakes, it's usually called the Urna snakes, named after some place in Norway. Anyway, it's not necessarily a symbol of Loki. She laced her fingers and wriggled them around. The snakes signify change and flexibility, being versatile. People started using the snakes to represent Loki, and Loki was fine with that. But I decided, why does Loki get to take over that cool symbol? I like it. I'm making it mine. He doesn't get to own the symbol for change any more than he owns me. To Helheim with what people think. There is so much to mine, I feel like, in the relationship between Loki and Alex and Loki and Sam, and then Sam and Alex, and their, like, weird family dynamic. It sometimes feels like Loki, at least I got this vibe from the first book, and I, you kind of see it here, even though he tries to marry her off to a giant, that Loki's much more interested in being in Smita's life as, like, more of a fatherly role, whereas I feel like he just finds Alex despicable. Mm-hmm. Um, which could be for multiple reasons. And then on the flip side, like while Sam and Alex both despise their godly parent, Alex is like also ready to murder Loki, which like I'm down for. Um, but mm-hmm. they, they have, there's a different dynamic than between Sam and Loki mm-hmm. and Alex and Loki. Yeah. I don't know. Because you know how like in the first book, Sam was like, I don't identify with Loki. I do not speak to Loki. Loki is not my parent. Like I was raised by my grandparents and I'm a Valkyrie. And that's how I participate in this world of Norse mythology. I am not a child of Loki as far Mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. Um, And she specifically doesn't shapeshift or doesn't ever try to Mm -hmm. shapeshift because she doesn't want that power from her father. And so when Alex came in, I was so curious about whether or not she was going to like Loki or like like her powers from Loki and I love that it's so complicated that she like she uses these powers and she sees herself as a shapeshifter and someone who embraces change in all of its forms but still hates (laughs) hates her mother (laughs) despises her mother it's something like it made me think about Nico and Hades and how I kind of wanted a little bit more of that kind of dynamic out of the relationship as opposed to Nico just kind of being like dad I'm gonna come hang out at your place like (laughs) is that cool and that kind of they're just kind of like weirdly getting along even though we know Hades has done some bad stuff the most interesting thing about their relationship for me is the way that Alex is able to resist Loki because that was terrifying all the like mind and body control are we okay skipping to that part at the end no please please yeah please I just especially interesting that Alex was able to do it and not Sam because Alex is so much more connected to the shape-shifting powers and like using that skill set but wow that's such a horrifying moment that really gets skipped over really quickly in the end that Loki told them to stop breathing and to just die parent of the year (laughs) all right let's take a quick break here and when we come back we will talk more fiero chase moments samira all boss as well as some hearthstone childhood trauma when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
All right. Welcome back, everyone. Before we dive back into Fiero Chase, I did want to shout out a listener at Resin and the Rejection on Instagram who sent us some thoughts on Irish representation in this series through the character of Mallory Keane. Um, they're pretty long, so I won't read them all here, but if you want to check them out, I will have screenshots of their thoughts and messages posted in the show notes so you can go there and check it out. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Resin and the Rejection. All right, there are two specific Fiero Chase moments I would like to discuss now, one of which is the wedding dress scene at Seif's palace when Alex and Fiero disappear into what Magnus calls the hall of magical makeovers. <laughs> this is after they come up with the plan to have Alex pose in Samira's place for the wedding. So this is Magnus's quote as he's waiting for Alex to come out. I'm not sure how long we waited for Alex. Long enough for me to drink some coffee and eat a frowny face of broken donuts. Long enough for me to wonder why Alex was taking so long hiding Seif's body. Finally, the goddess and the bride-to-be emerged from the hall. All the moisture evaporated from my mouth. Electricity jumped from pore to pore across my scalp. Alex's white silk gown glowed with gold embroidery, from the tassels on her sleeves to the serpentine curls along the hem that swept her feet. A necklace of golden arcs curved at the base of her neck like an inverted rainbow. Pinned to her black and green ringlets was a white veil, pushed back to show her face. Her two-toned eyes lined with delicate mascara, her lips colored a warm shade of red. Sister, Sam said, you look amazing. I was glad she said it. My tongue was curled up like a titanium sleeping bag. Alex scowled at me. Magnus, could you please stop staring at me as if I'm going to murder you? I wasn't, because if you don't, I will murder you. Right. It was difficult to look elsewhere, but I tried. Sif had a smug glint in her eyes. <laughs> Judging from the reaction of our male test subject, I think my work here is done. What a simp. An absolute <laughs> simp. <laughs> also, can we talk about the camping imagery? A titanium sleeping bag? <laughs> Rick was out of pocket for that one. <laughs> Wait, is that a reference to... The bowling alley, the prank that was played on Sam and Hearth, where they were supposed to unroll a sleeping bag, but it was actually a shaving of titanium. I have never read that in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you both flagging that because I did not. I've never heard of such a thing. (laughs) It's in the same part where they're like, and we had to like pick up a cat, but it was actually an elephant. That was one of the most confusing literary sequences. I've ever read. Mrs. Dalloway, Virginia Woolf has nothing on Utgard Loki. Uh, I had they no idea. The, the myth that this is based on. There's like a really classic Thor story where um, he and some other people, I want to say maybe Loki is there also, get challenged by a bunch of randos in the woods to some contests. And each time the contest is a lie because it's an illusion. And they, they mentioned the most famous of those, which is that like Thor was supposed to have a drinking contest against someone, but he was trying to drink the ocean, which is impossible. There were like some other things too, like somebody's trying to race thought, somebody else is trying to out eat fire, maybe. You know, that's the type of energy that we're bringing. But I think they like mentioned the context and the historical background for this afterwards, which was an interesting choice because in the beginning, <laughs> I guess it's to like save us the, the moment when um, Sam like <laughs> throws the axe into somebody's face. But, you know, context is valuable (laughs) yeah otherwise this is just such a special moment because this is the first moment when reading when you're like oh wow he like likes her like there you know you can read into it and you can tell that like he 
he, he's really fascinated by her and that he is kind of simping but it, you don't get this kind of like dis- physical description of what Alex looks like until this moment and like this confirmation like oh they're gonna get together like it's only a matter of one more book probably um, <laughs> I feel like the first it's... clue in that scene is the fact that instead of getting his own donut he ate the donut that she had been eating which is like such crush <gasps> material to be like I just want to put my oh! mouth where your mouth has been <laughs> What a good piece of gold, a little nugget to mine out of that scene. Wow. Yeah, he's in deep. <laughs> I was going to say, this is this scene for me is reminiscent of um, seeing Titan's Curse. Where it's, I forget what book it is for Jackson, where Aphrodite shows up and something similar happens. Where like she, that goddess plays a role in us realizing that these characters are going to end up together. I don't know why this scene reminded me of that. Yes, absolutely. Steve's doing a little meddling here. I just like that he's looking at her with obvious admiration to all of us and Alex is like only seeing fear. <laughs> I think it's good that he has a little bit of fear. Maybe that's not healthy for. Oh my god, no. He should be afraid of Alex. I think that she I think that she knows too, though. I feel like she's constantly just messing with him she's like yeah i know you're obsessed with me and i'm just gonna like incessantly (laughs) needle you about it literally i know that you worship the ground that i walk on because it's on your face but if you keep looking at me like that i will kill you yeah again again i also want to say i mean it starts from like the first paragraph of this book the fact that like magnus is just like so blazingly bisexual And, like, it's one of my (laughs) biggest frustrations with this book is the part at the end where him and Alex finally kiss. Spoilers. Sorry, I don't know if I'm not supposed to spoil book three. Go ahead. (laughs) Where he's like, oh, my God, I just realized that Alex is actually a boy. I wonder how I feel about that. I was like, Magnus, we have known since page one that you feel (laughs) fine about that. Have you read any description of you talking about other people's clothes? Like... No straight man has ever described a dress the way that Magnus just described Alex's dress, and it has nothing to do with who's in it. I know, he's always like, oh, Blitz. Blitz knows so much about clothes and fashion, and we're like, Magnus, so do right, you, Right, because he's baby. constantly like, so the color you. of Blitz's suit just complements his skin tone so well. It, like, looks so great. <laughs> like, sir, you are a queer person, <laughs> like... <laughs> no one no one doesn't think this i need a stamp that says sir you're a queer person so that every time i read one of rick's books and there's a new character that gets introduced i could just you should maybe just mail it to rick i don't know because he is in fact the man behind the screen writing this description of this dress kind of off topic but i was buddy reading this book um one of my friends has never read Ryan's books so we're going to all of them together and she is like insistent that blitz and hearth have something going on that is canon as far as I'm concerned. Wasn't it that Reed Riordan article um, from June, um, from Gay Month, that they deleted to answer the incredulous look on your face, Elizabeth. Thank you. Um, there was a <laughs> article that Reed Riordan posted that was like, we're celebrating the gays in the Riordan verse because it's June, honeys. Um, and it like went down the list of like the different gay people. And, um, when it got to Alex, it, the article used like they, them pronouns for Alex, which was problematic, obviously, because Alex specifically says in this book that 
she does not use they them pronouns because <laughs> that's just not how she identifies um and so i think that is probably why they deleted the article but there was also a line um like there was one talking about reyna talked about piper talked about magnus like as being pansexual or bisexual and um there was a line that was like and also while we're on it blitz and hearth seemed suspiciously close didn't they <laughs> and that was that was it. So, canon. <laughs> that ruins it. No, 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 no. That's giving J.K. Rowling. You can't, like, be like, oh, did I do a little queer subtext? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's 2022. Like, we don't have queer subtext anymore. It's, like, you should make a text. It's so weird that it's not. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense that it's not just stated because these sense. books are so done. gay anyway. But then also it's just, like, again, page one. It's, like, these are my queer adoptive parents that people call my mom and dad, even though they're both men. They spend all of their time together. They call each other like my dwarf and my elf. And when they're separated for like two (gasps) seconds, they're like in each other's arms. That scene where they come back and Magnus is like, want to come back and sleep at my place? And they're like, no, we need some alone time, kid. No, we have to go home. (laughs) Like, we all know where you're going. Except Magnus, for some reason. Literally... He's like, you guys can come back to Hotel Valhalla. And they're like, uh, your parents need, yeah, mommy and your daddy need to go have date night. Time. Okay. Okay, Maggie, Maggie Pooh. We're going to the movies. All right. Oh my God. You know, do any of you guys follow uh, at K8 Sabs on TikTok who does the lesbian parent TikToks? Oh, yes. Yes. It's like that. Those two characters are Hearth and Blitz and Cornelius is Magnus. Yeah. That was a very niche reference. I hope someone gets I that. I am with um, you all the way. I'm just like, wait, which one of them is Donkey Kong? It's Blitz, though, right? <laughs> Donkey Kong is probably is probably Hearth. Okay. No? I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. One of the parents is mom, and the other one is Donkey Kong, um, for context, in this situation. And their child is named Cornelius. They have two now. And then they have another adopted kid. Yeah, they have two now. The other one's name is <laughs> Cornelius Ramon and Ramona Cornelia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. anyway i'm obsessed with them this creator there was one other reference i wanted to make as far as the blitz and hearth dynamic which is such a stretch but i really feel like i need to talk about it because i just watched oceans 8 last night for the first time and are you gonna say kate and sandra 100 percent kate blanchett and sandra bullock in that film <laughs> That this was not 2022. This was whatever, like 2018, 19, um, I think 2018. So it was 2018, but still, same thing. Like that was like so much queer baiting that it was just not queer baiting anymore. That it was just gay, but you won't just say it. That is the same dynamic. Like they were like two old friends who have known each other longer than all the other youngins in the film and the group, and they were just like running things like parents. They finished each other's sentences. They were in each other's arms, giving each other eyes the whole time. Kate Blanchett had like this pantsuit bob wig and only pantsuits for the whole movie. It was bewildering. Kate Blanchett's bob. <laughs> this is a separate conversation. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Kate Blanchett's bob with the bangs. She had these like low cut bangs, bangs that were like in her eyes. Bob, and the, like, she was on a motorcycle. <laughs> As listeners of Seed right now, Kate Blanchett scares the shit out of me. <laughs> As she should. Magnus is my son, and Kate Blanchett scares the shit out of me, and these are two things I know to be true in this world. Are we going to gloss over that you called him Maggie Pooh? Is that his nickname, Maggie? <laughs> we haven't Doesn't somebody here... refer to him as Maggie in this book? Does, Am I Alex, does somebody 
Alex. Alex does, right? Okay. I love that we've been here for an hour and we've only talked about Fiero Chase, <laughs> and I'm going to keep it going because we do have one more scene we have to talk about, which is the campfire. Does anyone remember when this takes place? Like, where are we? Or which world are we? Was this after? Yo, yeah, after the bowling thing? Is it before, before when they're doing the... Before, okay. before bowling? It's right before Blitz the bowling thing. When Blitz and Jack yeah. are... Like, moving the bag. Iconic moment that we should just drop in for for people at home. Since it wasn't really in the summary, um, they get this little mini task that they need to move a giant bowling bag to the giant bowling alley. So the giant bowling bag is, of course, the size of a mountain or something. So the fix that they have for this is that they um, is that a blitz is going to do fashion magic on the bag because it hasn't been named yet. So there's still more work that can be done to complete it. So he spends all day using Jack the sword to sew the bag with runes and what does he do he he makes it magical so that it activates upon a password to, to change sizes <laughs> and the password of course is password, password. <laughs> so they have this slapstick absolute vaudevillian comedy routine where they say password and it gets really big and they say password and it gets really small again it's so funny this is a very good moment delightful <laughs> okay so they're at the campfire while this is happening with the bag it's just Alex and Magnus because Hearth and Sam get captured and then we meet up with them at the bowling alley. But they're talking, Alex is opening up about pottery and how the studio is a safe space, the beauty of the art form. And she says, the thing about clay, it can turn into any shape. I get to decide what's best for each piece. I sort of just listen to what the clay wants. I know that sounds stupid. Hair tucked behind the ear. And <laughs> and then basically Alex gets some kind of like head trauma. Magnus is like, hey, I can heal that for you. And Alex is like, no, I know that when you heal people, sometimes you see into their minds. That's just something that comes with Magnus's empathetic, gay, healing summer magic. And Magnus is super honest, super like just like very to the point, <laughs> very direct communication. Like, I can't promise you I won't see anything but I won't go looking and I do think I need to heal your head. And Alex just kind of just like begrudgingly like fine, but you know, Hey now, um, <laughs> don't no looky looky. And Magnus heals, heals up her head and says, you are still a mystery wrapped in a question mark wrapped in flannel. That's adorable. That's a good scene. You know, we are all familiar with the trope, right? Where teens are like changing together for the first time or something, right? And they're always like, don't look. And if this were, is like a piece of content that was produced before like 2010, invariably like the boy looks at the girl and we're all like delighted by how cute that is or something. But um, I feel like this is just a lovely update of the scene. This has every everything that you might want out of that trope, but inventive, thoughtful featuring consent you know um. i think it's a mix between the like we're changing together for the first time trope or we're changing in the same room and also the i'm gonna heal your wound forced proximity thing because instead of yes, the yes, forced yes. physical proximity it's forced intimate proximity <laughs> and the vulnerability of you getting so close to my thoughts but like you're not gonna do anything consent trust mm -hmm. i feel like this scene shows like the flip side like you see i'm gonna see with the wedding dress scene that like magnus is falling for alex and I feel like that part where it's like, I'm not like other girls, like, I'm gonna know it sounds stupid. I feel like Alex is more self-conscious because he has budding feelings for Magnus. Yeah, this is a two-way street. Alex <laughs> is delighted by Magnus. Obviously, we don't get Alex's perspective, so we can't 
speak on it as much as we can speak to Magnus simping. But Alex thinks <laughs> Magnus is so cute. He's a little, he's a little Kurt Cobain. Like, this, isn't it this book or is it the next book where it's the next? It's one. The haircut jokes. The haircut. Where, yes, and she, Alex starts like forcing Magnus to cut his hair and like changing his hair <laughs> to what she wants it to look like. Oh, <laughs> oh, so cute. Oh my god, they're just adorable. When she decapitates him, it's so cute. <laughs> All right. Those are just the moments that I had highlighted. But does anyone else have any like Fiero Chase things they wanted to talk about? I think one of the early moments that's important is in the household. While they also have these conversations where Alex is explaining things about gender and, you know, fluidity, they also have these moments where, in Magnus's perspective, basically... <laughs> I, I, I should probably read it directly. I'm not going to because, um, I don't know, I guess I could. Um, there, there are like a lot of moments in that section where it really seems like the dynamic at that point is Alex feeling incredibly powerful around him. And like you get these flashes of Magnus being like, oh, Alex is like kind of attractive. And you can see in the dialogue, like <laughs> Alex really being like, oh, this is so fun for me. <laughs> yes. That this person <laughs> oh my God. like, attracted to me and like sort of flirting back but flirting back from above you know in, in a very specific um and that as an progenitor to these moments of fireplace healing vulnerability warms my heart and that's the kind of dynamic i like to see can we copyright the flirting from above term because that is so it and isn't that like when you're flirting with a white man and you're like, I'm going to flirt from above. And this is fun for me because something about this is the only situation in which I am ever above a white man. And this is delightful. I am gaining power from this circumstance. <laughs> That's what's working out. I am gaining power from this circumstance. Alex is like, yes, good for me. Sorry, we're getting really <laughs> into it today. I would say both of you to assume I don't treat every white man like they're beneath me. <laughs> Flirting from above, flirting from above. It's not condescending when you're flirting from above. <laughs> Any other fear of chase moments? Floor is open. Um, this is not that, but we sort of like jumped, like glossed over earlier the moment where Magnus talks about having experienced a lot of trans homelessness when he was houseless and like what he saw from the way that like kids interacted with their parents. And I've seen a lot of criticism online of like, the clunkiness of that in the book and how it just like people being like, oh, like forcing stuff down our throats, whatever, like, because it kind of feels like a PSA. But like, as a trans person, I wept into my book when I read that the first time, just being like, that's like going into children's brains. I'm a huge defender of that tiny little paragraph being in there, no matter how grumpy other people may be about it. I think yeah. people were just grumpy regardless. If that's like, they're grumpy for the wrong reasons, so let them be grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Let people be grumpy. Because so Rick true. in particular, during this, um, when the time period when these books were coming out, like, no other books I was reading had representation of any kind. So, like, even with his Muslim character, yeah, it's not the best recommendation. I'm not going to recommend Magnus Chase from Muslim Rep, but it's better than what else was <laughs> out there on the market, which was nothing. So, <laughs> shall we segue to Sam in this book? So we started the conversation about Samira 
and a how she's perfect and has no flaws um <laughs> we love her for that um it may be poorly written in that she has no flaws but like slay i guess we love to hear from her i love to know what she's up to i'm like that's my i have a parasocial relationship with her i'm like yeah do you want to meet at the thinking cup like Let's grab a cup of coffee. I think Carter was like, yeah, if you met Sam at a cafe, you would just have like a flawless time. It would never be <laughs> awkward. Like you would just have a great time. I would love to. Be, like the first scene in this book is delightful. Wouldn't you love to meet Sam at a cafe and for her to immediately be like, I'm actually so busy. <laughs> Thank you for stopping by. Um, and you're just like, I'm just like honored that you would spend 10 minutes with me and like fit me into your schedule. Um, you're beautiful. Have a great day. <laughs> yeah, we also started the conversation about Sam, like, existing in the world of Norse mythology while being a practicing Muslim woman, and how in the last book, the book in which she is introduced, there is no conversation about how those two things can reconcile with each other, and that it's not until this book where Rick finally, like, actually names that conversation of what it means to Sam in her own mind um, of worshiping um her god while also living in the world of lowercase g gods so we finally actually get that conversation here um i'll just read this brief quote to start us off it's on page 94 i actually have a page number for this because i remember writing it down specifically (laughs) when i was reading the book for the first time as opposed to the pdf which i've been doing this week i had to do some soul searching when i first realized my dad was you know loki I still don't accept the idea that the Norse gods are gods. They're just powerful beings. Some of them are my annoying relatives, but they are no more than creations of Allah. The only god, just like you and I are. I really like this description, um, like as a Muslim, um, looking from that perspective, because things like magic to an extent, maybe not the modern way we like define magic, things like that do exist religiously, so like it works. But also when it comes to like mythology books and having Muslim characters, who is also like a Rick Riordan imprint, um, City of the Plague God, that has like Muslim characters with mythology. I just suspend all this my belief. I just suspend it. I was like, it's just gonna work. I'm gonna pretend it works. And I don't really honestly, if I get into it, I'm going to give myself a headache. So I'm like, cool, it works. Why not? Why can't we have Muslim characters in this mythology world? A, a headache like Amir's headache. Uh, <laughs> Magnetist to come heal me. I really want to echo Carter what you said in the last episode. Like, to assume that Sam can't exist in the world of Norse mythology is to assume that no character we've ever met in the Riordanverse is a Christian or Jewish. <laughs> like, to imply that somehow these religions are so different that, well, for Christians, they can, they can you know, worship their god and also be in, in mythology, but, like, Muslims can't, like, is just ridiculous. Mm. Like, we've obviously met characters who are Christian <laughs> <laughs> because there are Christian people in America, as we know. <laughs> Lots of them. <laughs> so, like, why have we never heard their reconciliation? Because they don't need any more representation. They're fine. <laughs> exactly. Actually, when I was listening to your episode, I was like, please stop asking for this. No one needs to hear from them. I don't care how they reconcile it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't want to hear from them. Put them away. I would say the most unrealistic part of Sam's character is she wears the same color hijab every day. I promise you, you have not met one hijabi who doesn't change their hijab color to match their outfit. The most unrealistic <laughs> part of this book is she wears the same color every day. Doesn't that kind of beg the like? Does Sam wear the same outfit every day? It's a good question. No, because Blitz gets mad that she's like mixing her earth tones when she's wearing <laughs> a green hijab and a brown peacoat. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> and Magnus is like, Sam, that is not complimenting your eyes. I'm so sorry. Someone has to say and it. Everyone's like, these are straight men. How could she possibly fly? <laughs> I'm going to cry. <laughs> My tummy hurts. <laughs> Um, uh, we didn't really talk much about Amir in the last episode because he was kind of a small character in the first book, but he is present now. Sam loves him um, and wants to be with him and vows to marry him and only him. And so she decides that she kind of just has to tell him like what is going on in her life. And so she starts to expand his mind which I appreciate that they take this very seriously to the point where Magnus literally has to heal him in order for him to survive mm-hmm. because it's very similar mm-hmm. to the Greek mythology uh, world where the mortal's mind would just melt if they were releasing everything. It's kind of like this like progression for Amir is what I wanted from Paul Blofus to get a little bit more detail <laughs> on him, you know, fighting in the Battle of Manhattan and stuff like that and like what he was actually seeing that whole time because it wasn't what was actually happening. But it's so fun that Amir gets to like travel the Bifrost. <laughs> I love that he's included in the talk just like, hey, the Muslim character has like she's engaged with someone and he exists somewhere. I like that he becomes kind of part of the gang this book. And like again, because Sam has no flaws, they just get along super well. There's no conflict. They're perfect together. They love each other. They're adorable. I mean, they do have an argument, but it's more of like a metaphysical argument where Amir is kind of confused about what things Sam physically can show him i i think the argument is like specifically number one iconic because it takes place at the only actual relevant boston landmark in the entire series which is of course the sitco billboard that lights up at night um shout out to that not to sitco that's a fossil fuel company but like the billboard beautiful iconic the argument is like so short and like so resolved neatly and quickly when they both like are actually able to just resolve this literal misunderstanding about the nature of what her powers are and then we're just we're just great again she immediately turns around and in a honestly like quite iconic scene does that like she like when they're in front of heimdall she like makes her vows right there and she's just like even though it might be very essential to the plot let me just tell you everybody right now that not not even a fake wedding this is just not going to happen and we're going to just do something else and that was intense yeah that was a moment and Magnus, I think Magnus is like, I was like, some, like something rumbled, like, or like, I was scared that we were going to like collapse into medical, physical, metaphysical nothingness by Sam, like swearing to her God while like we are in the Bifrost in Norse God space <laughs> and there's a mortal here. And it was just kind of fine. And then also everyone in their friend group was like, yep, great. We will work around that. No Sam, even fake getting married and we will, we'll just make it work. <laughs> Because we respect you. It's great. Santa's supportive friend. Yeah, I feel like the Greek demigods would not do that. Like, Leah would be like, Sam, come on. Like, you have to do it. Like, just do it already. Like, it's going to make it so much easier. There's none of that. Not the Leo slander. Uh, you should ask Vespa who her favorite I, I love Leo. I also love Leo. It's not just me. We love a diversity of opinion. We're very tolerant of difference in the sense that we allow people to say nice things about Leo on, on this podcast. <laughs> We're so open and accepting here. But at least we can all agree that Sam is perfect. Yes, we can all agree Sam is perfect and that Sam and Amir are kind of adorable. Um, this is also related to the book, but I will say before this, I was trying to like put together a cosplay of Sam that I would wear during this. 
but I cannot, Aww. like, I don't own a ton of green hijab. Like, that's not a color I think a lot of people wear. So some shopping might have to be done. <laughs> yeah. Character. But you have to get an axe, too. We'll see. We'll see. I think we also just should, like, keep flag in our minds the whole thing of how Sam is unable to resist Loki's control right now because in the next book we're gonna see alex and sam kind of working on that together i really think it comes down to something elizabeth said earlier is because like the difference between sam and alex is uh, alex i think has fully accepted that she is a child of loki she has those powers where sam openly like resists that and doesn't use those so i think that's honestly what's causing this block is because she refuses mm. to use her powers that her like is granted from her her father um that she, she just can't resist them so I think that's going to be, like, the big thing for the next book. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is it time for a little uh, debrief on the Hearthstone of it all? As we mentioned in the summary, in this book, we do go to Alfheim, which is where Hearth grew up. And we knew previous to this book that he had a rocky relationship with his family, partially maybe due to the fact that he was born deaf and didn't live up to maybe his family's expectations maybe because he's gay i don't know um (laughs) but (laughs) we do find out everything when we go back to his place too so we can get the scoffing whetstone and like we said like this is a very queer found family moment for them it's just magnus and blitz who go back with hearth here um and they spend like a considerable amount of time there we worry that it could be even longer because of the whole like uh repaying the war guild thing Yes. But it ends up just being a couple of days. Let's elaborate on that. This is horrifying. Like, yeah. <laughs> immediately, right about the same time we, we get these details about his Hearth's father's horrific treatment of him, like, one of the things that gets mentioned is that he is supposed to pay a debt to his father for what happened. Like, there, there is a monster hide on the floor of his bedroom, and he is supposed to cover it in gold coins, but also he has to pay gold coins out of the debt payment whenever he wants to do basic things like i think one of the things i mentioned is that he has to pay out of that to spend time alone in his room am i tripping i'm pretty sure that happened right yeah like they're they're just absurd things and we find out that the father also does this for everyone else that there's like a servant in the house who he maybe kidnapped maybe from the woods behind the house who also has to like pay for doing random things during work hours or something like i'm trying to remember a specific example but we all remember this happening right yes. but like she like has to pay a fine when she like applauds at the wrong time or like <laughs> or he wants to take a 15 it's... minute break a five minute break yes yeah it is because very, elves are um... capitalist monsters and also racist in everything capitalism. ever yes elves are always <laughs> racist monsters of capitalism in all forms in which they appear in pop culture <laughs> Sorry, that, that was just a background about, like, what specifically is going on. And, and just, like, a background on, on Hearth's life up until the point where we have to go and then do more crazy stuff beyond all of that in order to actually get the father to relinquish the uh, whetstone, which they need. Also, does anyone want to summarize, like, what happened with his brother? Sure. He and his brother were playing by a well in the forest behind the house when they were little and Hearth was turned away from his brother and is deaf so couldn't hear what was happening and a monster came out of the well and killed his brother and his parents blamed Hearth for although like again he was a child so I'm not quite sure what he was supposed to do even if he had seen it happening 
Mm-hmm. The monster that comes out of the well is the one that his father skins and leaves on his floor to collect. No, he made Hearth skin it. His dad killed it, but he made Hearth skin it. Very specifically, makes Hearth <laughs> skin it. Yes, thank you. I like the part where Magnus sleeps on it. It's like, because fuck you, that's why. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to swear on your podcast. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. <laughs> Something about the imagery of the three of them sleeping in Hearth's like childhood bedroom all together, like on the ground, like yeah. as they're trying mm-hmm. to fight back against his abusive father, and they're just kind of like trapped here, and it's kind of like quiet and awkward where they're trying to come up with a plan. It's so like weirdly realistic, even though they're on a monster run <laughs> and we're in Alfheim. You know, it just feels like very familiar yeah. in some way. Yeah, so they go and they get this ring, which, oh, I'm going to sound it out. Anvaranat. Anvaranat. Which actually isn't named in the book. It's just the ring of the dwarf Anvari, who, as we said, lives as a fish in a lake that <laughs> brings, <laughs> brings one, like, wealth and gold, money, but then turns them into a greedy monster. And just in case you were like, this sounds really familiar, it was a big source of inspiration for the Lord of the Rings. Very much J.R.R. Tolkien has lots of Norse mythology in the lord of the rings once they get the ring the whole carpet fills up magnus has a moment of being like ah my precious um and doesn't want to give it up but then he does (laughs) ultimately hand it back over to what's his name alderman yeah mr alderman and when we leave he's just like you know he's getting a little kooky there's a whole thing with like a party that mr alderman throws yes he throws a party and invites basically all the elves to the party to fixate on his incredibly somehow higher level of wealth now that he's acquired all this gold and as the party's going on he becomes increasingly paranoid and terrified and tries to trap everyone in the party and arrest them for stealing his stuff um so we already like before we're done with his section of this book we already see that the ring is kicking in it's ready ripe mm-hmm. yeah and we sort of just leave, which I love. Like, <laughs> like obviously, like we said, like we do, it's not a huge spoiler to say we obviously do come back in the next book to kind of deal with the consequences of these actions. But like the fact that we just leave and, you know, there's no apology that's going to come out of this re- visit back home. There's no like expectation for closure, either from his father mm-hmm. or from the death of his brother. We just kind of come in here, do our best to get out as fast as we can with the object that we came for save blitz and then get out because it's not realistic to assume that there's going to be some kind of tearful homecoming or closure i should also mention the conversation about the rune because this is important to hearth so there's a rune of othala kind of like at the well and magnus is like what is this (laughs) the quote goes means home hearth signed or what is important inheritance he considered it for a moment then nodded i put it here when i left years ago this rune I will not use. It belongs with him. I stared at the pile of rocks. Were some of these the same ones that eight-year-old Hearthstone had been playing with when the monster attacked his brother? The place was more than a memorial for Andiron. Part of Hearthstone had died here, too. I was no magician, but it seemed wrong for a set of runestones to be missing one symbol. How could you master a language, especially the language of the universe, without all the letters? I wanted to encourage Hearth to take back the rune. Surely Andiron would want that. Hearth had a new family now. He was a great sorcerer. His cup of life had been refilled. But Hearthstone avoided my eyes. It's, wow. It's very nice. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like, it's said, it's phrased so well. I, 
I feel like I really, I believe I said last time Hearthstone is the person who I, in this series, am most rooting for, identify with the most strongly. I really, I really feel this, this moment. Ah. Oh. Perfect. Perfectly, perfectly patched. <laughs> the way that Magnus narrates the scene also is just so, um, so gorgeous. Because who else in these books would say, not even in these books, like it takes a very specific narrator and a very specific relationship between the narrator and the character who's having this happen to process things this way. Because Hearthstone certainly is not having this reaction. Not many of the types of like first person narrators we get in middle grade fiction would have this type of reaction but magnus is so forgiving and tender and observant and he's the softest boy i've ever known he is so soft and tender and empathetic and it's so true it comes across in all of his narration of all of his friends and and the people around him and his observations of alex it's just yeah it's so sweet it's so that's what makes reading these books such a wonderful experience too because we're getting everything through magnus's sweet sweet perspective and we see how much he cares about his friends which is also funny because i did ask on twitter who is sassier percy or magnus <laughs> and 160 people voted and the results were 72 percent said percy jackson and 28% said Magnus Chase. And that really made me mad. <laughs> I would disagree with that. Really? <laughs> you know, I feel like Magnus, I don't know, can I say this? He's like, he gives himbo vibes. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, he's just very passive. I don't really see him as, like, sarcastic. Like, he's funny. But Percy's, like, very, like, this can make sense, like, pointedly sarcastic. Whereas Magnus is more, like, subtly, like, very passively sarcastic, if that makes sense. Yeah, in a more, like, tired, I'm exhausted, what's right. going on in this Norse world, why is the dwarf a fish way? I yeah. feel like Magnus is the kind of person that makes a joke, and then, like, five minutes later, you're like, oh my god, that was such a good joke. Yeah, Which like I think <laughs> makes him sassier, because, like, he can get away with a lot more, whereas Percy is just, like, so noisy. He's so noisy mm. all the time. Like, you so never loud. miss it when Percy says something. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Which... You know, he's also a lot more blunt. There's nothing subtle. So I think if you're asking specifically about sass, then it really does have to be Magnus. I agree. Somebody, it was at Becky with AZ on Twitter, replied to the thread and they said, I would argue that Magnus's inner monologue is more out of pocket, but his filter is 10 times more effective. I think that's Percy's. also a big thing. That's right. That's right. I think Magnus is just like only says nice things for the most part. But internally, it's just like, what a dumb idiot. Like, <laughs> Magnus like, is like just quieter, which is something. He's so soft. I value. Like, <laughs> That's my soft bit. son. It's my sweet, well raised, well mannered boy who only speaks when spoken to and lets Alex decapitate him whenever he wants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> does anyone have any other things? I have a couple questions for certain people here um, that I want to ask. But does anyone have other things about this? I don't know. I think you had in the notes something about like who can be saved in terms of like relation, like family relationships. And I oh, think yeah, that Randolph. you made a really good point about like there not being any sort of emphasis on like the idea that Hearth was going to have any sort of like reconciliation with his terrible dad, which I wish we saw more of in media in general. Mm -hmm. I wish we saw more of it with Magnus and Randolph. I wish that he just wrote him off, like, 
way earlier on. But I like that he kind of does in the end be like, yeah, they're, I don't, Annabeth was like this dude's family, but I'm not like totally sure that that's true. And you're like, yeah, it's not really. Well, like Randolph also doesn't do anything to redeem himself, right? Like you kind of get right. why he's doing some things. But like I said, like I forgot Randolph was a character until, the, until he showed up. I was like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Magnus has an uncle. Um, although if we are at the end of the book, can we talk about the last chapter where he does meet up with Annabeth? Because. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. We love it. Do we all remember how every single Harry Potter book as a frame narrative would end with two chapters of just Dumbledore explaining everything that had happened? Yes. Um, in case you were confused. And also is that what Annabeth is doing here? Recontextualized. This is so much of a better version of what that frame is trying to accomplish. Wow. You know, because like, I don't, honestly, I don't feel like we need the conversation, right? We just need to know that he's being cared for by someone who really has seen some shit and has some thoughts and experiences does legitimately care about him, but also is like maybe a little bit removed from the world. Like it's such a perfect perspective. This is the perfect amount. I wanted to show up at the end and be like, so did you have a good time? Like, what have you been up to? Let's catch up. But then like not even show the catch up. Just be like, okay, that's happening for him. He- he's going to get some good, good advice. He's going to be cared for well by someone who I trust. Yeah. They're literally just debriefing. Like Magnus says a lot to talk about. Let's get some lunch. And then they do. And then, he's like he's noticing that annabeth's like stormy eyes are looking more like fog banks like she's super extra tired she's like a god fell to earth as a human these evil roman emperors are back causing trouble he says oh just the usual then she says yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like at the um it's in like the break room you know around the water cooler just (laughs) chit-chatting it's just the usual and then yeah and then because he knows magnus knows that they're going on the ship they decide to call in Percy um and feel free to interrupt but I think feel like it's a good place to close off on this book um there are as always there are things that we didn't quite get to we'll continue the conversation about Hurt's dad and about closure versus the beauty of not having closure and not expecting closure in the next episode um there's going to be even more to do with um Sam existing in the world of the Norse mythology while observing her religion in the next book that's going to be a big thing as well but before we close out today I do have a question for Besma specifically because you are on our podcast and because this is the podcast I co-host and I said so I'm going to ask you a question which is who do you ship harder Persebeth or Kazaninej from Six of Crows? Ever since I saw that question on the outline, I've been, like, dreading it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's okay, no right I answer. I, okay, I've thought about it, like, thoroughly. So, Persebeth is the greatest love story to ever exist. I feel like that's an irrefutable fact. However, the act, like, using shipping as a verb, Percy and Annabeth are, like, a solidified couple, whereas Kazaninej are still, like up in the air right it's never nothing's ever like solidified mm. so i do ship as a verb <laughs> like the act of shipping i'm actively shipping can edge more versus percy and annabeth i also just feel like percy and annabeth have been like they've been like settled for a while like they get together at the end of the first series whereas has an edge um there's a lot more at stake so that's my answer because i love them both immensely I love how you chose to go with semantics and you were like, well, to the verb of ship. <laughs> to ship? 
Probably. <laughs> to ship or not to ship. Depending on the status of the current relationship and where they exist in canon, I think that was a great answer. <laughs> awesome response. You've read it, right, Elizabeth? Yeah. Yeah. Lark, that's your next bedtime story to fall asleep okay. to. <laughs> but it might give you nightmares. <laughs> I don't read upsetting things. So why I only read YA fantasy is because the world is really upsetting and I am only willing to exist inside of things that are not upsetting in my free time. That's so true. Six of Crows is upsetting, um, at the very least. <laughs> it upset me. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We will link everybody's socials, um, links to all of Hashtag Ruthless Productions, to uh, Besma's Book Club and other book talk events, as well as Elizabeth's Bookstagram account. That will all be in our show notes. Please make sure that you check it out. And we will be back next time in two weeks for Trials of Apollo Book 2, The Dark Prophecy. Lord, save us all. We'll make it fun. Will we? Kind of. How are we going to do that? <laughs> well, hey, hey, hey. We'll make it fun. Okay, sure. That sounded really promising. You all know that gif that says when I was only a little bit mean and I could have been meaner? <laughs> we'll make it fun. I put that in the outline to refer to Alex and uh, Magnus's relationship. That's Alex every time she talks to Magnus. Me remembering how I was barely even mean when I could have been meaner. Um, anyway, on that note... <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.